Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Hang on. Brother Bobby, I've been fighting this thing since I put it on. And I think we about got it right now. Book of Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. And the title of this morning's message is, That's When Things Change. That's When Things Change. Uh, There are currently very few subjects out there in which there is more money to be made than in leadership education right now, uh, or in management training. It seems that every single business out there is looking to hire leaders and looking to uh, train the leaders that they have, uh, because leaders are an important cog in the wheel of change. And most everyone, I think, most everyone would freely admit, if they're honest, that there's something in their lives that they would like to see change. Either something... Physically, about the way you look, something financially, about the way you spend or don't spend, Uh, something relationally, Uh, maybe you'd like to change your spouse, maybe you'd like to change spouses altogether, I'll never condone that from the pulpit, but I understand what you mean sometimes, (laughs) because Liette tells me she would like to change spouses on occasion. And the book of Nehemiah is one of my favorite books on the topic of leadership because it goes hand in hand with the topic of leadership and the topic of change. Uh, If you study the book of Nehemiah, you see that there's about to be a drastic change positionally for the people of God, for the Israelites, for the Jewish people. There is about to be A great change from where they are right now in the beginning of Nehemiah to where they find themselves by the end of the book of Nehemiah. There's going to be a lot of positive change for the people of God. And really it starts with the spark of a dynamic and faithful leader. So if leadership and change are a topic that's important to us, and if we can all freely admit that we would like to see some things change in our lives. And why wouldn't we study biblically a place where we see change take place? And so let's dive into the book of Nehemiah this morning. And we'll be in the first chapter. We'll be in all 11 verses of this first chapter. And if you would all please stand as we honor the reading of the holy and infallible and errant word of holy God. Nehemiah chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. 
And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you both My father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you, acknowledging, Holy God, that if anything happened in this place today, it's going to be because of your Holy Spirit, Lord God. God, we come before you and acknowledge that we are meek, weak, and unable. But you are mighty strong and powerful, Lord Jesus. We ask that you cast any spirit from this place that ain't your Holy Spirit, Lord God. Set down among your people this very day and change our lives this very moment, Lord God. And all of God's people said, and you may be seated. The first thing that we're going to see in Nehemiah... And the first thing that we're going to have to recognize in our own lives if there's going to be change is this. There's the problem that he faced. The problem that he faced. What is this problem that Nehemiah faced? Well, we find him, we see in the beginning of the chapter, we find him in Shushan. And Shushan is not a dish that you order at Peking for lunch. Although it may be. Shushan is a place where the royalty of Persia would spend their winters and the citadel was basically their palace in Shushan. So Persia was this great big empire in this time and the royalty, because of whatever reason, would spend their winters in Shushan. I'm assuming the climate was warmer than where they spent their summers. And so they would go and winter in the citadel in Shushan. So... We find Nehemiah there with the royalty, and as the cupbearer, Nehemiah was in a position that was pretty high-ranking as far as to the king. His job was basically to take the, the wine and the drink and the food that was brought to the king, and Nehemiah would sample it, and thus determining if it was poisoned for the king. And so he had to be a trusted official to the king. He had to have risen to this position of of prominence and importance by gaining the trust of the king. Because truthfully, if you wanted to poison the king in some way, all you had to do was get the cupbearer to to see things your way and you could deceive your way into the king. So the king had to trust Nehemiah. And so he's the cupbearer and he's in high authority in the Persian king's court. But then we also see... 
that Nehemiah receives word from the people of Judah and he calls them his brethren. Now, I don't know if Hananiah is his actual brother as if they share the same parents or if he's saying the brethren from, from Judah, meaning the other Jewish people. So, so we find kind of a, a conflict there a little bit. We kind of find a conflict in the fact that Nehemiah is a high-ranking official in the Persian court, but Nehemiah is a Jewish person. So he's not Persian, yet he's ranked to a high official in the Persian court. So he doesn't really fit. He's not really supposed to be there, you could say. Uh, He's not necessarily supposed to be in the position he's in of such a high ranking. So what is a Jewish brother doing in the royal palace of the Persian king? Every football season, I think the same thing. I think how in the world do all these Alabama fans get in Tennessee? They just don't fit, right? They just don't fit. And some of you, bless Jesus, I hope you get saved one day. But it's kind of that same, same thought process, right? How does a good Jewish man rise to this position in the Persian court? What's he doing there and what's he doing here? If he's there, why is he worried about what's going on with the Jewish people? But let's just remember a little bit contextually uh, what got us to where we were. So... The Jewish people were taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. You will remember, this is where we get the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and the billy goat, and all of those things that we hear about. Some of you caught it, some of you didn't. That's okay. Uh, Because that's when the Babylonian Empire came and took the Jewish people, and they brought all the Jewish people back to Babylon. They deported them all. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the gates. They destroyed the walls. They destroyed the temple. Everything in Jerusalem was lay in ruin. It was left a wasteland of history. It was left to become one of those cities that we read about in the history books as that place that used to be. And the people were all taken from there and all dispersed. But after 70 years of captivity, the Jewish people were free to return home. So after only 70 years, it was decreed that they were able to return to their homes. But, little problem there. In those 70 years, some of those Jewish people had kind of liked where they were hanging out in the Babylonian and Persian empires. They kind of liked their new positions. Some had risen to positions of prominence while they were in exile. Mordecai, Esther, is where we get those stories. She became the queen. right? So they had risen to these prominent positions. And so after 70 years of captivity, of the 2 million Jews that were taken by the Babylonian empire, only about 50,000 returned to Jerusalem. So there were only about 50,000 that got there. If you read the book of Ezra, this is the time that's chronicled in the book of Ezra is the time that this remnant returned. And so the book of Nehemiah picks up about 15 years after the end of the book of Ezra and some 150 years after they had been taken into captivity. So after 150 years, so, so 150 years before we start reading what we read today, the city of Jerusalem was ransacked, lay in waste, ruined. And the people were removed. And only 50,000 went back. And so that tells us you know, how Nehemiah got to the position he was in. But then he hears from his brother this problem. His brother says to him, the survivors. Now just think about that very word, 
that he uses to describe the people back home in Jerusalem. It would be like when you see a long-lost relative that lives somewhere else, and the first thing they say is, is how's everything at home? How's everything where you're from? How are the people? So his brothers come in, and they, Nehemiah says, how's everything in Jerusalem? And they say, they're survivors. That word alone says the people that, have, that are, you know, still making it, some haven't. Some are struggling. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of sadness in Jerusalem. There's a lot of problem in Jerusalem. The survivors, the ones who are battling just to stay alive. I don't want to hear my relative from another town come in and I say, how's mama and them? And they say, they're, they're, they're surviving. I want them to tell me they're doing good. Don't you want to hear that your people are doing good? So Nehemiah hears that they're surviving. They weren't even really citizens because they didn't really have a town. Because they didn't have walls to fortify their city. They couldn't rebuild their temple because, guys, in this time, there's, there's empires everywhere all around. And so if they tried to rebuild the temple, that would have meant they had to put something valuable in their city and start to build it. And somebody would look down. Every time they tried to do anything to move forward, some, some nation would rush through and tear it down. And so they didn't have a city, they didn't have a temple, they didn't have a life, they didn't have a home, they didn't have a relationship with anything. They were just there where Jerusalem used to be. They had tried to rebuild it. You'll read about it in Ezra 4 and they had failed because people kept coming in and knocking things down. But if you study the remainder of this book, you'll find that Nehemiah is going to lead his people on a marvelous and God-honoring, God-glorifying journey in the book of Nehemiah. But it started in these first three verses with Nehemiah recognizing that there was a problem. There was something that needed to be addressed. There was something that had to be dealt with. It's very possible that Nehemiah, from his position in the Persian court, just figured everything was okay in Jerusalem. Just assumed, because some people had went back, that they had managed to rebuild it. But now he gets this troubling news that there is a problem, and it's a problem that Nehemiah sees and recognizes that must be dealt with. Many of you here this morning are living your life with no desire to recognize the problems around you. You're perfectly happy living your insulated life Doing the things that you do that make you happy, that feel good to you, that uh, cause you to be able to get up every morning and, and go on and carry on. But when a problem around you comes to your attention, when someone brings it to your attention, your preference is really just to pretend you didn't hear that. I'm on my way to work and, and, and somebody says to me, such and such lost their house, and you go, ooh, that's too bad, but I'm on my way to work. Did you hear about this family that's struggling with this situation? Ooh, that's, that's too bad. Do you know what happened in my house last night? Right, that's, that's how we pretend. We don't really want to see the problems around us because as Christians, if we recognize that there is a problem with our brethren... We're called by God to do something about it, aren't we? 
We're called by God to be compassionate, to be loving, to be his hands and feet. So it's easier to pretend there's not a problem than say there is a problem. Because what happens to us? If we say that there is a problem, if we say we recognize there's a problem and we do nothing, we have to admit there's something wrong with us. And we don't really want to do that, do we? I don't really want to pretend there's something wrong with me that I lack compassion or that I lack a heart for people that need or that I lack a desire to see someone come to know Christ. Because let's be honest, at the root of all the problems around us, of all the things around us, we can say it's Obama's fault or Trump's fault or whoever you want to blame for the problems around us. But in reality, the problems all around us are because the people inside of here quit caring about the people outside of here. We quit worrying about about whether they were going to hell or not and started worrying about whether they looked and acted and felt the way we wanted them to look, act and feel. And when they disagreed with us, we weren't concerned with their heart condition. We were concerned with what they were doing to us fiscally or financially or from a leadership standpoint. And I got news from you. Until the people inside of here recognize that the people outside are going to hell, nothing's going to change. They're not going to change themselves. They can't. You couldn't change yourself until someone presented the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. You were going to hell too. And so we have to recognize that there is a problem in order to do something about it. So we see first the problem that he faced. But next, let us look at the passion that he felt. Some of you are thinking, good grief, if the next point's about passion, this guy's going to explode. But... Next, look at the passion that he felt. What's the first thing that Nehemiah does when he finds out there's a serious problem? Look at verse 4 with me. And so it was, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. Let's just stop right there for a minute. I sat down and wept. Now, this isn't just, oh boy, Hananiah. This sounds tough. Let's have coffee and talk about it. Let's just sit down. Now, literally, the, the Hebrew phrase here for sat down literally lends more not to I'm going to have a seat. It lends more to my legs don't work anymore. My knees buckle out from under me. I am brought to my prone position by this news that I have received. Literally, Nehemiah heard about his brethren in Jerusalem and the exile that they were living in, and he could not even remain on his feet. When's the last time you were so moved by a problem in your life or the lives of someone around you that you lost your ability to stand? That you just... You couldn't stand up anymore. Many of us, it's, it's when we received a bad diagnosis from a doctor or when we received news that our relationship was heading in a direction we didn't want it to go in or, or when we got one of those. But when is that last time? Because that's what I want you to think about. Because we've all received that gut punch one day that said, I can't even stand up right now. I, I can't even get up on my feet. I can't, I can't even fathom getting up. That's what Nehemiah felt for the lost people that were his brethren. For the people that were wandering in Jerusalem, he said, I can't even stand up. And it brought him to tears and literally into a state of mourning. He felt the same way for the people in Jerusalem as he would have felt if his father had passed away. Literally was in a state of mourning. The passion that Nehemiah felt, I'd say at first, manifested itself in agony. It's the best word that I could come up with. To think about what Nehemiah was feeling. He was feeling 
agony for the people of Jerusalem. Before I became your pastor, I was a district sales coordinator with Aflac Insurance Company. And part of my job was going to way too many classes on leadership and hearing way too many motivational speakers who should have been cheerleaders telling us how to want to get out of bed and how to make other people want to get out of bed. One story that I heard that always stuck with me, this is about success, but we're going to relate it back to change. He said, there was an old man and a young man at a sales conference. And the old man had been very, very successful in his life. He had riches, he had monies, he had respect, he spoke at the conference. Everyone looked up to this old man. And this young salesman went up to him, trying to build up the courage to go and approach this guy. And he said, sir, I want you to tell me how I can be successful like you are. And the old man said, if you want to be successful after the conference this evening, I want you to meet me on the beach. And so they met on the beach, and the old man said, I want you to wander out in the water with me. And they walked out in the water, and they got in the water that was almost up to their chest. And the old man said, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to let your body go limp. And the young man did, and the old man grabbed that young man's body, and he stuck him under the water. And he held him there. For a few minutes, for moments probably, the young man was relaxed. But then he started to doubt when the old man was going to pull him back up. And the longer he stayed there and the less breath he had in his lungs, the more he began to kick and thrash and throw and fight and pull. But the old man wouldn't let him up. And he continued to kick and fight and thrash and kick and fight and thrash. And he couldn't get out of the water for anything. And suddenly, the old man pulled him up. And as he gasped for breath, the young man said, what is your problem? And he said, son, when you want to succeed as badly as you wanted to breathe, that's when you'll succeed. Folks, when you want something in your life to change as badly as you want to live, that's when something changes. Because you see, until you get to the point that you can't live with how it is, you're not going to change it into something that it's not. Until you get to the point where you say, I cannot take this anymore. I cannot take this situation. I cannot take this lifestyle. I cannot take this sin in my life. I cannot take this in my situation. I can't deal with it anymore, God. Until you're willing to come to the point that you want it to change worse than you want to move forward, it will not change because you will not give it to God until you realize you can't deal with it. You will not look at it and do anything that God commands you to do until you've done everything you think you're capable of doing. Because for some reason, we lack the ability to give it to God until we've tried everything on our own. Until you realized you were a sinner, you couldn't grasp the forgiving nature of Jesus. Until you realized you were going to hell, you couldn't grab the coattails of a Savior to go to heaven. Until you realize you needed a Savior, you couldn't understand what Jesus did on the cross. It's just not possible to get saved without first realizing that you're a sinner. Because if you don't know that you're a sinner, what are you getting saved from? If you don't realize that you've sinned before Almighty God, what do you need to be reconciled for? I'm afraid that the biggest thing missing 
not in this church particularly, but in all of our churches. I think the biggest thing missing in the church in America is not a well-dressed pastor who prepares well through the week and preaches a fiery message from the pulpit. That's not what's missing from most of our churches. Most of our churches are not missing a well-groomed youth program that engages the children. Most of our churches are not missing the next Sunday school class. Most of our churches are not missing a WMU. They're not miss, missing a, 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 a men's group. They're not missing any kind of program that we can throw out there. The biggest thing missing from our churches today is a group of people that will agonize over the fact that people are going to hell around us. Quite frankly, that's why we don't evangelize the way we should. Because we don't care as much as we should. That's why we don't reach out as much as we should, because quite frankly, we don't care as much as we should. When's the last time you thought of your lost spouse and were moved to the point that you couldn't stand up? Your lost son, your lost daughter, your lost brother, sister, father, that lost family member, every one of you, there's not a person in this house this morning, not one of you, that didn't just think of somebody in your family that's going to hell. Not one of you, don't you? If, if you did, you're the only person I've ever spoke to that couldn't think of somebody. Let me know. I'll give you somebody I thought of so you can think of them. But when's the last time that you didn't just think, oh, I hope they get saved, that you actually were brought to your knees in agony, shedding tears for their lost soul? When's the last time you thought of your coworker, your friend, that person you barely know that you met that you know is lost? When's the last time that you were moved to a position of agony and truly wept for their salvation? Because you see, until we as Christians are moved to the point of agony for the lost souls around us, we're not going to do anything about it. We're not even going to try to go out and see anything change. We've got to get to this point of agony if anything's going to change. So first, Nehemiah agonized, but then he answered. He didn't just have an emotional response because, right, it's not good enough just to say there is a problem and, and oh, my God, there's a problem. It's a good start. But if you're not going to move from there, you're still not going to do anything. What do we see? See, see, fasted and he prayed to God. Nehemiah didn't just get emotional and say, I wish things would get better. He was moved to the point. He said, what can I do? So first we see the problem that he faced. And then the passion that he felt. And finally, the prayer that came first. Now remember, Nehemiah is about to embark on a building project that would make anybody out here that's ever been involved in construction go, wow going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in just 52 days. Gates and walls and fortifications. Without all the bulldozers that we have now, we can't even build a house in a year sometimes. They're going to build walls in 52 days. But you notice the first step for Nehemiah wasn't to start cutting wood. The first thing that he did wasn't to go out and get a surveyor to lay out the post holes. The first thing he did wasn't even to look at a picture of what the walls used to look like. The first thing that Nehemiah did was he went to God. He said, God, there's a problem. What next? First he goes to God with humility in his prayer. Look what Nehemiah says. He says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God... 
You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open. He's praying to God and he says, God, you're, you're, you're bigger than me. God, there's a problem. And the first thing Nehemiah says is, Oh God of heaven. Oh God that is above all of this. Oh God who is sovereign and in control. Oh God, you are above all this and I cannot. He's saying essentially there, I understand that I'm not qualified to do anything about what's going on in Jerusalem, but you and you alone are God. He says, you keep your covenant with those who love you. That word for love there in the Hebrew literally means, it would be like you keep your covenant with those who are faithful. That word could, could be translated faithful. And, and he's saying, God, let me just bow before you and acknowledge the fact that I understand that the problem with where we're at is not you. The reason that the city lay in ruin is not because you're a mean God. The problem with us being displaced is not that you're a hateful God. The problem with us being displaced is not that you've not been faithful on your end, God. It's that we have not been faithful on our end. The reason that Babylon came in the first place is because we had strayed from your commandments. The reason that we're still in exile even though we're free is because we have strayed from your commandments. The reason that we're not worshiping in Solomon's portico and living in the temple again is because we have chosen to stay in the world instead of coming back to you, God. Because you are faithful, God. You're faithful. You keep your covenant when we're faithful to you. He says humbly, please hear my prayer. Please be attentive. He, he humbly says, God, we don't deserve for you to even hear us at this point. Isn't that the complete opposite of human nature? To say, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. Right? That's just not in us. Husbands and wives, how many of you would be better off if you ever spoke to your spouse and said, I realize that with the way that I've acted, I don't even deserve for you to stop and listen to me. But would you please listen to me? Think about God. What, what right do any of us have in terms of what goodness do we have inside of us that gives us a right to think that we even deserve to be able to go to God and ask Him to hear our prayers? But He says what? He hears our prayers. But humility is how we must go to Him. And Nehemiah goes here and he says, God, we don't deserve anything. You are God. You are above all this. I'm a sinner. I failed miserably. My house, my father's house, all my brothers, almost everybody has failed miserably, God. But I understand that only you can deliver. He honors God. He says, I understand that the, your promise says that if we will return to you, that you will deliver us. If we will just return to you and your commandments, God, you will deliver us. And he says, God... Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Now, he's getting ready. Nehemiah finds himself at the end of chapter 1, having prayed for four months these prayers of humility. 
four months of fasting and praying that God would tell him the next step to make. And when you read chapter 2, you find Nehemiah going in to speak to the king. So it took four months of prayer before God said, all right, Nehemiah, it's time to go see the king. So for four months, Nehemiah had to fast and pray and look for an answer and acknowledge that God was holy. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have ever tried praying for four months for something and still acknowledging that God is holy and in control and going to deliver. But I can't imagine that it was easy for Nehemiah. I like to get an answer, I don't know, maybe four seconds after I start praying. If it takes eight seconds, I start to wonder if I'm praying the right prayer. By four minutes, I forgot what I was praying for sometimes. Four months, Nehemiah prayed and fasted. God, show me what to do. There's a problem, God, and I lay it at your feet because I can't fix it. But he wasn't just saying, God, fix the problem. He was saying, God, use your servant in some way to be used in this problem. Friends, when we get to the point that we don't say, God, show me the right plans to get this problem fixed. God, show me who to delegate to fix this problem. God, show me who to reach out to to get this problem solved. When we get to the point where, like Nehemiah, we say, God, use me to be part of this solution. God, show me how I can be used to be part of this solution. That's when things change. That's when things change. So maybe you're here this morning. And something in your life needs to change. Something's missing. Uh, Something's just not where it needs to be. Maybe you need to agonize a little with Jesus. Maybe you need to humble yourself to the point that you're willing to lay it down in his feet and say, God, I can't. But you can. God, I don't know, but you do. Will you use me, God? Maybe you've been thinking of someone that you know in your life is lost. Someone that you know doesn't know Jesus. Would you be willing to agonize over their soul just a little bit this morning? Would you be willing to start this morning and carry that on for four months, four years, 40 years, however long it takes for them to come to Jesus? Would you be willing to agonize over their soul? Or are you really only somewhat concerned? Because that's really what it boils down to. You don't believe that you have the capacity to pray hard? Wait till somebody tells you that your mother has cancer. Wait till somebody tells you your wife has cancer. Wait till somebody tells you you have cancer. I have been part. Thank God he has allowed me to be part of some of the greatest prayers ever prayed by some of the most humble people when they were facing some of the most dire situations. But my point is, if you're willing to agonize over your sickness, are you willing to agonize over the lost soul of the man that drove down the road just a minute ago? Are you willing to agonize as deeply over the lost soul of the man that lives two doors down? or three doors down, or sits in the desk across from you. Maybe it's your family member. Would you spend some time agonizing over their soul? But maybe you're here, and you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never followed Jesus. 
And you keep hearing this handsome preacher. I tried. You keep hearing this guy up here talk about praying. You keep hearing him talk about what it means to come to Jesus. You keep hearing him talk about all these things, but the only agony you feel is the agony in your soul that says, if I died now, heaven's not my home. I've never accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Then won't you step out this morning and accept the love of Christ to cover your sins and learn what it's like not to have to agonize over your soul anymore. Let's pray this morning. Father God, God, we come to you and we acknowledge that in so many ways we fail every day. God, we fail to agonize over the people we know that don't know you, Jesus. God, we fail to spend time recognizing the problems around us. So God calls our hearts and our minds to be able to see the needs of others. God, move us to the place where we can no longer stand, that we would have to find our way to our knees to truly show your love in prayer, Lord. And God, for that one here this morning, who's never accepted you as Savior. God, give them the courage and the conviction this morning to step out and say, I believe. And it's in your precious name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.
Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org.